Pepsi. Over the last several months of 2022, we talked about our home lives, looking at the way that the gospel impacts our home relationships and marriage and family and friends and so on. We've entered a new year now, but we're actually going to keep going for just a few more weeks because there are a handful of things we still feel the need to address. Like, for instance that which many people are filling their hands and their homes with, and that is children. And here at Calvary, this has been happening a lot in recent years. People keep saying there's something in the water. Yeah, there's something potent in the water. In one of our beloved elders' words, as usual... We just keep popping them out. (laughs) And I'm well aware that I am talking about this subject today when my wife is due to give birth any day. Believe it or not, that was not intentional. (laughs) But anyway, this is a topic that we need to consider from a biblical standpoint. Because if we don't shape our mindsets based on God's word our world and culture will be more than happy to shape them for us. So we're going to be talking about child bearing today, and then next week we'll look at child rearing. And these are things that we all need to think about, whether we're having babies or not. Yes, how should those of us of childbearing age or life stage approach having children? What should our motivations or purposes or goals be? But also, how should those of us either too young or too old to have children see things? Like not, like, what if you're not in that life stage? If you're maybe anticipating it one day, or you're looking back on those days, or you're speaking into the lives of those who are? Or how should those who are struggling or unable to have children respond to this topic? There are bound to be parts of this message that are painful for childless couples. And I wish that weren't so. But I hope to offer you some comfort and hope at the same time. So, in a world that is full of contradictory messages about the value and the purpose of new life, and a culture that's full of birth control and birthing routines and units and baby stores and daycare centers and and social media feeds filled with pregnancy announcements and gender reveals and new baby pictures and homes that are full of baby equipment and baby clothes and baby food and diaper bags and a church full of babies, period. (laughs) How should we approach this sensitive oft contentious, happy, 
unavoidable subject as followers of Jesus Christ. How does the gospel relate to childbearing? Well, let's start right back at the beginning and turn to Genesis 1 together. Again, super hard passage to find. Genesis 1, where childbearing is actually introduced before any other human relationship and is given as one of the foundational purposes of human existence. All right, so Genesis 1, and I'll be reading from verse 26 to 28. It may be becoming familiar words to you. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's no secret that babies, for all their adorableness, can be tons of work. And kids can be very difficult to parent and cause parents plenty of pain. So you might wonder right at the outset, why would we even bother? Why have kids at all? And we're going to talk about some of the reasons that you may naturally feel or commonly hear. But the Bible gives us a primary reason here in Genesis 1 that not many of us would consider. And that's that we bear children in order to multiply the blessing and the image of God. So we bear children more than anything else to multiply the blessing and image of God. We're not just populating the earth. We are filling the earth with something very specific. Where it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it's out of that reality that God blesses mankind and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the image of God, or the imago Dei, refers to the way that God created us to reflect or to image him. I recently used the illustration of, of me taking a picture of you on my phone. And that picture, by definition, is an image of you. It's not you, obviously, itself. It's just a, a digital file with pixels that's stored in my phone but it does reflect something of what you're like. It's an impression of your likeness. Being made in God's image doesn't make us God, but it does mean we reflect certain things about him. We're like him in various ways. We are his handmade, hand-picked representatives on earth. We also learn here, and again in Genesis 2, that people were created to care for God's creation. 
subduing and having dominion over the earth doesn't mean to just use it and abuse it. It means to cultivate it, to benefit from it, to tend to it, to enjoy it, to oversee it, and to protect it. He's entrusted us with a, a precious gift of his creation and responsibility. We're meant to be stewards or caretakers or gardeners of his garden. But one gardener wasn't enough for this big world. And two wouldn't be enough either. Oh, two would be perfect for reflecting God's covenantal love, but not his expansive care. Not how overflowing and outward going his love is. So like we were created to reflect and serve and glorify our creator. However, God is, is far too glorious for us to glorify by ourselves and our limited and finite and mortal selves. Therefore, we need more people than just us, people who will come after us, go beyond us, and thus we bear children in the hope that they too will reflect and serve and glorify God. So, in childbearing, we're not just propagating the human race for the heck of it. We're multiplying the likeness of God through a diversity of children. You don't actually need to be a Christian or a God-fearer in order to do this. But Christians should feel an extra impetus to do so. And of course we do this best, not just by having children, but by raising children, raising them to be God-fearing disciples of Jesus. But that's next week's topic. Today we're going to focus on this. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And like anyone with grade two math or above can tell you, multiplying is not just adding. Humanity required generations upon generations to obey this command fully. And you might wonder, since the earth has been successfully filled these days, do we still need to do this? And while I recognize that Overpopulation is a sensitive topic that needs to be nuanced. Most countries actually have the opposite problem today with birth rates falling dangerously low. I'd also argue that every person on earth reflects God's image in unique and powerful ways. And it's hard to imagine having too much of God's image running around. Yes, we need to be responsible. Yes, we need to be wise. Yes, we should be careful. And yes, we should keep wanting to multiply God's image for everyone to see. Besides, this is not just an obligation or a burden. This is an outright blessing. God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. So on the very first page of Scripture, it implies that children are an outflow of the blessing from God, something to be anticipated and pursued and celebrated, received like the gift that they are. Our culture will simultaneously tell us contradictory messages. That they'll say that children are a, a great blessing to pursue, and they'll say they're a great curse to avoid. So we should 
desire kids, but only on our terms and under our complete control, or else kids will jeopardize our dreams or our relationships, our careers, our money, our freedom, our retirements, or our lifestyles. Like we're indoctrinated to be fearful and anxious about having children. And thus we're having fewer and fewer children later and later in life. But while we can agree, we can agree that having children may be complicating or challenging or even scary, having children should never be seen as a curse. Never. New life is never a negative thing. The Bible consistently views procreation and childbirth as a very good thing. It rejoices whenever a baby or babies are born. It laments whenever infertility or death prevents it. And those of us who are blessed with children should always be deeply thankful for them. No matter how exhausting or expensive they can sometimes be. As I often tell people, the blessings far outweigh the costs. So, we bear children in order to multiply the blessing and the image of God. Now think of how this challenges our common reasons and motives for having children. This means we aren't meant to bear children in order to find personal fulfillment in life. People can easily treat kids like little gods. Kids make terrible gods. We also mean shouldn't have kids to impress other people or to meet their expectations of us. We don't have kids to, to make cute little mini-me's that look like our baby pictures. We aren't meant to bear offspring just to propagate our family line or our family name. We shouldn't ever bear children to achieve a certain status in our communities. Like, well, she's got it all now. She got a man, now she's got kids. Or he's a dad, he's all grown up now. No. We don't bear children to, to make life more fun or adventurous. It may or may not be. We shouldn't have kids to, to receive money from the government or tax breaks. We don't even bear children to have people around who will love us or make us feel needed. No, we bear children for the glory of God and the extension of his renown across creation. As Christopher Ashe says, fundamentally, we are to desire children neither because we find them adorable, if we do, nor because others expect us to have children, if they do, but because we understand that this is how God populates his garden with gardeners to care for it. Turn over to, to Psalm 127 with me at this time. Psalm 127. If you're familiar with this psalm, you knew it had to make an appearance in this series on home life, right? If you want a home that reflects godliness and faith and peace, take these words to heart. 
It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. In other words, everything in our lives depends not on our labors, but on the Lord's love for us. We can trust him with our homes, with our safety and security, with our work and our rest. But then in verse 3, the psalm takes an interesting turn, focusing on children for the remainder of it. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Where it says children are a heritage, it means they are a gift. They're a blessing. When it calls kids a reward, that could be a reward for obeying Genesis 1 mandate. And verse 5 says parents are blessed or blessed if they fill their home with them. And given the main theme of this psalm, of trusting the Lord, it says we don't need to to fear having children. You can depend on the Lord for them. Trust him with how you'll care for them. One of my local pastor friends observed some common reasons that people fear having kids. And he said, there are many who fear bringing children into our screwed up world. Some are concerned about overpopulation or climate catastrophes. Some are harboring a fear about their marriage being tenuous and doomed to failure. Some are concerned that they might replicate the abuse they received from their parents. For these and other non-selfish reasons, pray that your local church can be a place where these matters can be shared and discussed and prayed over. It is good to come to the place where you can trust Jesus as Savior and Lord and choose life. Choose life and blessing. If you're a a kid here today, most of them are downstairs right now, maybe you're watching online, I want you to know this with absolute certainty, that you are a blessing Whether or not your parents recognize this or treat you like it, you came from God. He gifted you with life, and he gifted you to others around you. He placed you in the family that you're in for a reason. So be thankful for them. Do your best to love them like God loves you. Parents, Are you thankful for the children that God has entrusted you with for a season? They're not your, they don't belong to you. But how are you treating this priceless stewardship, this gift that he's given you? How are you loving them, training them? Your kids 
are gifts, not God's. So don't center your whole life around them. But your kids are also blessings, not burdens. I know there are plenty of days kids don't feel like blessings. Yet they still are. And those of you without kids, it is still good to rejoice with those who rejoice. To celebrate with those who experience this blessing. So don't begrudge those who have kids or judge them looking down on their choices. Lest we scoff at the blessings that come from God himself. Now some today would wonder why we would limit this blessing to inside marriage. Why shouldn't a couple who's in love pursue children even if they're not married? And the answer the Bible gives is that marriage is designed as the God-ordained, morally right, and safest environment, not just for procreation, but for sexual relations as a whole. So like, you can't have kids without sex, and you shouldn't have sex without marriage. We've seen this a lot over the fall. Sex is a good, God-given, powerful thing which is not safe outside of God's design. Now, the answer our society inadvertently adds to this is that children greatly benefit from having strong and stable marriages and homes. Like if you're, uh, the numbers back this up, if you are unmarried with kids, you are far more likely to end up separated and single parenting. And just observationally, has the single parent epidemic been shown to be a good thing for kids overall? Now, I know single parents who have my utmost respect. And I know that many of them do not choose to be raising kids solo. If that's you, your kids are not doomed and God's grace is sufficient for you. Just by and large, being born to unmarried parents has very detrimental effects on kids. Researchers have found that children born to unmarried folks have lower parental capabilities, family stability, father involvement, and long-term well-being. Like the Bible knows what it's talking about. Another question, is it okay for a married couple to deliberately choose to not have children? To deliberately choose that. In general, most of the time, I would say no. Now, there are exceptions, of course. Like, say, if you marry too old to bear children or you're in extreme health situations. But while God may choose to give or not give this blessing of new life to you. I don't believe our goal should be to intentionally avoid his blessings. Also, as an aside, don't have pets rather than children. You can have pets. You can enjoy pets. But don't call them your kids or treat them like people. 
Just don't. <laughs> Demeans God's truest blessings. If you love the Lord and, and you don't want children at all, I just ask you to, to seriously consider your motives. Do you have wise, godly motives? Because you may. Or do you have selfish and earthly motives? Maybe, do you have a fear of, of difficulty or commitment or work or pain? Or do you have a, an idolatry of money or career or freedom? From the beginning, God intended married couples to be open to, the, to having the gift of children. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, obviously, not everyone will be able to do that. And if you can't, you are not less valuable or significant than those who can. But if you are able, are you willing? Are you willing to serve God on his terms and not just your own? Are you open to God transforming your desires to reflect his own. Now, many of the same principles come into play when considering how many children to have. You might hear Psalm 127, blessed is the man who fills his quiver, and you wonder, well, should Christians have as many children as humanly possible? I believe there's, there's some Christian freedom to planning this as as long as we're being ethical and biblical here. Somewhat related to this, we ask, can or should we use birth control? That's more of a gray area scripturally. Sometimes it may be wrong, sometimes not. I think there's some good principles, though, to take away from scripture to keep in mind, though. Such as, don't try to play God with your family planning. You're not God, so don't try to be him. Don't refuse or resent blessings that he does give you. As a couple, make sure that you honor each other's convictions and consciences. Never, ever resort to killing in order to maintain control. And that, of course, obviously through abortion, but also through other forms of birth control that kill a fully fertilized egg. Like, do your research. Don't be willfully ignorant here. Also, very importantly, be open to God changing your plans and changing your minds. I inwardly chuckle whenever a sweet premarital couple has already worked out exactly how many children they will have and when. You don't know. <laughs> we'll see. God could have very different plans for you. From infertility on the one end to some unplanned surprises on the other. Same goes for a couple with kids who decisively conclude, we are done. <laughs> there may yet be a surprise in store for you. 
Or God may move your heart to adopt some precious kids, like he did with my parents, years after they thought they were done. Hold all your plans loosely and take them to the Lord in prayer persistently. Hear the warning of James 4. It says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Ultimately, we should be fundamentally turned toward the blessing of children while not presuming upon the goodness of God and trusting him no matter what. Now, all that said, you may think, this is all based on a mandate given to us in Genesis 1. But isn't that outdated? Like, look, it was outdated within two chapters in the Bible. And you're absolutely right. We no longer live in the paradise world of Genesis 1 and 2. We live in the polluted world broken by humanity's fall in Genesis 3. And that does complicate things, just a, a teensy bit, or a lot of bit. I put it this way, that our childbearing as image bearers has been corrupted and complicated by sin. Our childbearing as image bearers has been badly corrupted and complicated by our sin. Now you can flip back over to Genesis if you want to see this for yourself. But in Genesis 3, our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God for the first time destroying the perfect harmony and order of God's creation, introducing sin into the world. As Christopher Ashe describes it in, in Genesis 3, the gardeners rebel and become vandals, which is why the world is in such a mess. God wanted a growing team of gardeners, but after the great disobedience, more human beings does not automatically mean more good gardeners. It may simply mean more vandals. And God, therefore, placed a tragic yet just curse upon us and the creation we were meant to rule. And this curse has directly altered many things about life, including childbearing. Genesis 3.16 says, when he's speaking to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And thus, we would only be able to fulfill God's original mandate for us through pain and suffering. Obedience became that much harder. As we obey, we would also suffer. That's not just hypothetical. Every one of your mothers experienced this firsthand. But sin doesn't just complicate childbirth with pain. Far worse, it complicates it with death. Think about it. Infant mortality, maternal mortality, infertility, stillbirth, 
miscarriage. None of that could have existed pre-fall. None of that was in God's original design. Even worse, after the fall, many began killing their own offspring. Abortion or infanticide, child sacrifice. We've been so, we've so corrupted childbearing these days that we redefine it entirely as a personal choice to grow a clump of impersonal cells inside a womb which we can dispose of at any time. The Bible defines the unborn as children who are already wonderfully made in the image of God. They don't receive the image of God when their lungs first fill with oxygen. It's bestowed on them from the miraculous moment of conception. Yet our culture goes so far to celebrate that life being snuffed out. All these situations of new life, innocent or evil, all of them are being tarnished by death. They're just heart-wrenching. They're evidence of a broken world. Decidedly, not the way things were meant to be. Now, if you have personally been touched by childlessness of any kind, you know just how unique and excruciating the pain and grief can be. One couple called infertility specifically, that strange grief which has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. And others of you do have objects of your love that you've lost. Know today, Know today that, that you're right to feel a sense of great loss. The desire for children is a good one. And you've prayed, and the answer was a very difficult no, or not yet. It's totally acceptable to feel grief over this, to lament, and to cry out to God about it. Further, know today that glorifying the Lord does not depend on having children. If, if this doesn't happen for you, you are not failures. Your marriage is not fruitless. There are many ways to serve God. And many childless couples have been far more spiritually fruitful than many parents. Also know today that you're not alone. Many others around you experience the same as you. Believe it or not, between 10 and 20% of couples today will experience some kind of infertility. But even more comforting, God is with you. He sees your tears. He cares about your pain. And he knows, like he personally experienced the death of his own child before. 
And finally, know today that your pain, though it may seem endless, is yet temporary. Remember God's promise to his faithful people who were childless in Isaiah 56, that I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. For all of us, may we learn to be more aware of and more sensitive to this reality in each other's lives. Let's weep with those who weep. Pray unceasingly with those who long for children. God may yet be gracious and answer those prayers, even miraculously so. But even when he doesn't, standing together as his people is easier than standing alone. So, our childbearing as image bearers has been corrupted and complicated by sin. And sadly, we're destined to perpetuate these problems because of what we call our sin nature. Something that's passed on all the way from Adam down to us. But interestingly, something else was passed on from Adam too. Look over with me at Genesis 5, just a couple pages over here. Genesis 5, and in verse 1, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Now, that doesn't just mean that Seth looked like Adam. No, did you see the parallel there? God created us in his own image, his likeness, but then Adam had a son in his own likeness. Yes, we're like broken mirrors. We still reflect a marred image of God to the world around us. But even more so now, we reflect the image of Adam, which means... We don't just multiply nobility, goodness, and love anymore. We also multiply selfishness and greed and hatred. As Michael Reeves puts it, created to be in the image and likeness of God, Adam had been distinctly unlike God, and now the world would be filled with a pattern of delinquent feet. Feet like yours and like mine. And like our children's. So what's the solution to our corrupted, complicated, mutilated mission as image bearers? Wonderfully, mercifully, there is a solution. Which God provides through the gospel. And in it, he not only restores us. But believe it or not, he actually makes things even better. See, God's Son entered our world through childbirth to restore God's image in us and to elevate our mission of multiplication. Jesus came 
to restore God's image in us and to elevate our mission of multiplication. We'll unpack that. But it's, it's no coincidence that Jesus came to earth as a baby human in order to be humanity's savior. And he got the full experience, being conceived inside Mary's womb, developing a heart, lungs, eyes, ears, fingers, toes, the whole shebang in utero before pushing his way out through the birth canal the night he was born. Being born of a virgin woman, he was spared from carrying on Adam's image. He he was himself the, the firstborn of a new creation, the father of a new humanity, a second greater Adam, once again displaying the untainted, uncorrupted image of God in a man. This is very well established in Scripture. Colossians 1.15 says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's what we were always meant to be but never could. But now, if we believe in Christ and are thus spiritually united to him in Christ, the image of God is restored in us as well. This is happening right now in us. We are being gradually transformed back to what God created us to be. Listen to Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? To the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, if you're not tracking, the man of dust is Adam. The man of heaven is Christ. Colossians 3.10 says that our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Like This is a, a constant drumbeat of the gospel. What we lost in Adam is being restored to us in Christ. And all of that can be yours today because Christ himself can be yours right now. If you will renounce your sinful ways and return to your creator in faith today, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I hope that you do this even at this moment if you haven't before. And the restoration, the renewal will begin to transform you. Like this is the answer to all of our sin and all of our death. For we who are already on this path, this really wonderful trajectory, listen up, because we've got a mission. It echoes the original mission God gave us to be fruitful and multiply. But the multiplication looks different now. It's been elevated significantly. Christ enriched it, enhanced it, upgraded it. He gave it an even greater significance. Matthew 28. After Jesus rose from the dead and right before he left earth, he gave his followers this charge. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, we are to now go out into our broken world and multiply God's restored image bearers. Can't do this on our own. So Christ promises to be with us through the Holy Spirit. And can you see what's so great about this elevated mission? This new life that we pass on isn't just 70 to 80 years of human life. It's glorious, eternal life. And also, you don't need to be within a, a limited window of childbearing age or to be married to play a part in this mission of multiplication. All believers can be involved in it, from kids to singles to the barren to seniors and everyone else in between. We all get to be fruitful and multiply. In Isaiah 53, Christ is famously prophesied to die, rise again, and then to see his own offspring. And right on the heels of saying that, Isaiah cries out, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. That's what the gospel ultimately does for us. It gives us a greater, bigger, eternal family. It makes us sing. Now, until we reach glory, we will still need new generations born and raised to glorify God. And so, babies are still being born in 2023. Praise the Lord. Plus, child rearing is actually one of the most effective ways of raising new disciples, of doing this great commission. Like if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many of you here grew up in a Christian home, I'm guessing a solid majority of you would say you are here today because of that. So it's not that none of us are called to childbearing anymore. It's that we are called to far more than child-making. We are called to child-of-God-making. We don't make them ourselves, of course. God gives the life. He provides the new birth. We sow the seeds, and we tend to his new garden. Sound familiar? So whether we're making babies, making disciples, or both, let's keep this goal in mind. God created us to multiply.
This is a, a good and a gracious thing, a high privilege. God created us to multiply so that his image could be seen and restored in every corner of the earth and his name be praised by every generation that has come and is yet to come. So let's thank him and praise him together as we close, shall we? pray. Father, we thank you for life. Thank you for the lives that are, are represented right in this room. Thank you for the new life that you will yet bring in future generations. And most of all, we thank you for the life we have in Christ. Father, you are so gracious. Though our sins deserve death and hell, you sent your Son to rescue us. May we never grow weary of hearing that news. May we never grow cold to it. May we praise you until our last breath, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name. Amen.